You are listening to Shadow of the Wing, and I am Antonia Chain. This show is a serialized telling of the novel Shadow of the Wing by Antonia Chain. To find out more, visit antoniachain.com. Listeners are advised that some content is only suitable for a mature audience. Seth, Richard, Richard, Seth. Just a brief introduction. Short for Persephone, I'm afraid. My parents must have had a premonition I'd go into media. Nice to meet you, Richard. Thank you for agreeing to talk to me. Seth had a friendly but businesslike manner. Looked like many of the young media people Jess had come to know since her first appearance on Crime Stop several years earlier. She was efficient but casual. Jess knew better than to assume she was anything other than determinedly keen to get the next big story or film that would make her name. Since the earlier expose of the hospital, Seth knew that there would not be interest in another so soon, so frankly was not expecting much to come out of the meeting, but was here as a favour to a boss who knew Jess. Jess was pleased to see that she was neither afraid of Richard or impressed by his good looks. Richard could be smooth and charming when he needed to be, but he was also no pushover. It's nice to meet you also. I hope we can be frank. You're here to get a story of interest for which you'll get some credit. I've agreed to be here so we can work towards getting better conditions for patients. I'm really not interested in a zoo special or a freak show, and if that's the kind of programme you're interested in making, well, the patients I'm here to represent are not. Seth laughed good-naturedly, point taken. To be honest, I don't know if there's a story, but after the moody thing, interest has peaked again. Are you allowed newspapers? I don't know if you saw the stories in the red tops. It was not unusual for outsiders to be unclear about the difference between the top security hospital and prisons. In hospitals, patients had virtually the same legal and civil rights as non-patients on the outside, or indeed as patients in ordinary hospitals, whereas in prisons, many civil rights were rescinded. They particularly enjoyed stories about themselves, but conversely, were jealous of column inches about other patients. The Canada Jones reports had resulted in lots of retaliatory attacks against her. Press reports would suggest that even murderers and rapists were appalled by her crimes, but this was untrue. Attacks on her were prompted by envy about column inches rather than distaste of her crimes. The patients were allowed daily newspapers and these were very rarely censored. Richard was not interested in the Moody story. The story he wanted to tell was that of the work of the patient's counsel and the importance of involving patients in their own care. In the outside world, approved mental health practitioners, those legally responsible for sectioning patients, 
We're now obliged to consider the thoughts and feelings of patients and take every effort to engage the patient in their own care plan. The modernising of the role had not yet made its way into the hospital and this was a primary agenda of the patient's council, though, in truth, few of the patients other than Richard had much concern about it at all. Richard very much hoped Seth could be persuaded to go with the story and make a film, ideally one that would be longer than a 30 second slot on a tea time regional news programme. I don't mean to be rude Richard but yada 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 patients rights blur. We need an angle or a focus. Again Jess was pleased to see that Seth was not attempting to patronise Richard which would have been a fool's errand. He was one of the sharpest individuals Jess knew. Sheila liked the idea when it was put to her. In fact, she loved it. Well done, Jess. That's one of the many advantages of having you on board. You're so media savvy. Sheila could be insincere with a plum. It was agreed that Seth's team would be allowed to attend a patient's council meeting, so long as all patients gave their written consent. They could interview Richard Paul, and Sheila would of course be happy to be interviewed. She felt sure Dr Bergman would like to participate as well, and it was good, she said, to keep him on board. The film crew would be permitted to film the bonfire night celebrations to be held in the grounds, but not the patient's party in the gym room after. There was far too much potential for the patients to be overexcited and act up to cameras. Jess would continue to be a liaison person and she understood that this meant she would be held responsible if anything went wrong. The annual bonfire party was the second biggest social event of the year but was the most difficult and challenging to organise. Planning for the event took the team a whole year from virtually the day after the previous year's event. Christmas was straightforward in comparison. At Christmas, patients had ward-based events and perhaps a theme show or a carol concert in the gym room. Diwali and Eid were not celebrated. Hindus and Muslims were pressing for some marking of their special times of the year through the patient's council, but in the meantime were urged to get into the Christmas spirit and simply join in. There were very few in the hospital with concerns about the appropriateness of this. Bonfire night, though, was enjoyed by almost everyone. It involved the whole hospital being outside, apart from the few who were afraid of the noise and the fireworks. Several patients, particularly those with service backgrounds, had post-traumatic stress disorder and these patients were taken to the recreation rooms of one ward for the evening so they could be supervised. Some of the patients with learning difficulties and severe challenging behaviours had medication upped on the evening so that danger to themselves, but more importantly to staff, could be minimised. Michael Sullivan and Carl Langley led on the major issue of safety and security. Everything's in place, Mike. As usual, the bonfires will be built in the grounds over by the gym, so we can get the patients into the gym room with little hassle. The fire will, as usual, be fenced by link barriers. I'll have double shifts to supervise and no one will get over that barrier. They never have and they never will. The walkway to the gym room will have barriers along the full path. Team leaders will lead their groups by ward. 
and as soon as the display is over, the fire crew will douse the fire. There won't be any problems. The fireworks for the display were as usual to be set up outside the wall. No one was authorised to bring in explosives into the hospital and the celebrations did not alter this fact and never would. Jess, as instructed, took the film crew to be briefed by Carl Langley. Carl did not want the crew in the hospital. He could not see any good coming out of it and the memory of how he and his members had been stung by the last expose documentary was still raw. He did not feel or intend to be remotely cooperative or helpful, and it showed. His hostility was tangible. You are not permitted to interview any of my staff without a union member present. Is that clear? Any attempt to disappear this instruction will result in you being immediately ejected from the hospital. You are not being given carte blanche here. No free hand like last time. Every one of you signed the Official Secrets Act and I hope I don't need to remind you of the implications of you disobeying that instruction. The crew had theatrically been made to sign the declaration to abide by the Act. They didn't realise they were bound by it. The signing was not required but it was used as a reminder to the individual of their responsibilities and was an opportunity for Carl to make more threats. The crew were also not permitted to film beyond certain parameters. A large group of patients had not given permission to be filmed and they had a right to privacy, whatever their crimes. Those patients would be kept to one area of the bonfire perimeter with the crew directly opposite. The fire would shield the patients who did not wish to be filmed. At the point the fireworks have finished, the cameras go off. You will not film security arrangements for transporting patients. Is that also clear? After Carl had finished his briefing, Mike rounded the meeting off by thanking the crew for their understanding and for their interest in the event. He was sure, he said, that showing patients were in many respects as ordinary as the next person would help show Hilgram as a safe and therapeutic place. Jess thought Mike had done well, but she was equally sure that Carl had not made any friends that day and that the film crew would film whatever they thought would make for a better documentary. They were opportunists. It was the nature of their craft. The Official Secrets Act could be managed by their lawyers later. Richard Paul and the Patients' Council took a lead role in raising the extra funding for the fireworks. The hospital always budgeted a small contribution but relied upon private sector support and the active involvement in the prison, hospital and mental health charities which always chipped in. Sheila made sure to host some event during the summer months to encourage their continuing financial support. Richard was savvy enough to realise that the presence of a film crew would lead to a flurry of offers to donate for wood and fireworks from businesses keen to get publicity. He exploited it relentlessly, guaranteeing probably the best fireworks show the hospital would ever have. Lilac Ward housed the elderly female patients. This year, they'd been given the responsibility for making the Guy Fawkes. They were thrilled and determined that it was going to be much better than the feeble effort Lavender Ward had made the year before. The occupational therapy department buzzed with good-natured banter and howls of laughter as the guy was crafted out of old clothes, 
stuffed with old woolen sweaters and ended up being especially well endowed. The women couldn't wait for everyone to see what they'd made. Dorothy James, aged 84, still resentful that Ruth Ellis took her place as the last person to be hanged in England, carefully, though with shaky hands, painted the face on the guy. Everyone agreed she'd done a grand job. The mood was high. One of the younger nurses, Kev Nash, had offered to be MC of the disco. He had the decks and the tunes and even a few lights. He'd been making an effort to run a mobile disco on the few nights off he had. His shifts were so restrictive though, and he'd already decided to move on from the hospital so he could take on weekend weddings and prom nights. He might even go abroad. Despite what his mates told him about how competitive it was out there, he thought he might even give Abitha a shot. He was looking forward to jacking in his job at the hospital. Hardly any locals ever left and he knew it would cause some raised eyebrows, but he was going places and he had a good feeling about it. The charity Women in Special Hospitals had raised funds for the hospital kitchens to prepare a buffet. The kitchens had been given a budget of £2,000 to work with and this meant they could put on a really good spread. It also meant that several of the kitchen staff were on minimum wages and some of their mates in security who would be prepared to turn a blind eye to the bags leaving the hospital would be taking quite a lot of the purchased food home with them. £2,000 was a lot of sausage rolls and sandwiches and it was a shame to waste the joints of beef and whole salmon that appeared on the spreadsheets with the patients. The kitchen team were also looking forward to the fireworks, which they would go down and watch before they took to preparing food in the gym room. Sudia Pommel, one of the few black nurses at the hospital, had for the first time been given some responsibility for a project off the ward, and she was pleased. She'd managed to recruit a group of patients to decorate the gym room, only three of them, but together she, Terry, Angel and Della, would make sure it was really pretty. They had limited materials, but orange flag bunting and lining paper, painted flames around the room would look very suitable. The glitter ball Kev Nash had learned and maintenance had put up would make the room look all proper nightclub. The door of the chair cupboard would remain firmly locked. Katie May was absolutely beside herself. For her, this was better than any birthday or Christmas. She was not the only fire starter in the hospital and bonfire night held a very special place in her and her fellow fire starters' hearts. She discussed it endlessly in the women's ward support group. The group was not a therapy group as such. It was a place where the female patients could have some time for themselves away from male patients and male staff. Sometimes it was a gentle place where women offered tender support to others and rivalries and world politics were left elsewhere. Sometimes it could be a very difficult, bitchy, spite-fest of allegation and cross-allegation which remained festering after the end of the group time was called. On some occasions, though, it was like being in a room with a bunch of comedians. Often discussions were ribald and the spirit of the group was high. Even Terry joined in with the sessions. You won't even get near it, Katie May. We'll be well back behind the barriers. You'll be so far away, you won't even be warm. 
Oh, I know, but when they light it and the flames do that, will they, won't they, catch thing? It's better than bloody sex. I just love it. The women laughed at the childlike wonder in Katie May's voice, but they all knew she, and others like her, were in extreme danger on the night because of their fetish for flame and fire. They would never say it out loud, but many secretly hoped security would be strong. No one wanted her to get hold of anything she might use. A fire and a locked ward was the stuff they all had very bad dreams about. Seth did not think they had a goer. She and Dan, the cameraman, were both worried. Although linked to a TV station, they worked as freelance, and their income was dependent on both the commissions and the films they made and were able to sell. This film had been commissioned, but they had a bad feeling that the execs had not been impressed with the early rushes. We've got to sex this up, Dan. If they don't use it, we won't even be able to sell it to anyone else. In the documentary business, reputation had a major impact on income. Failure to wear a commissioned film could have serious impact on earning power. We're tied right up on this one, Steph. That Sheila woman won't let us have any contact with the patients. Richie Boy didn't want us doing a piece on him, and what else is there? Face it, Seth. We're royally screwed on this one. We should have done the film about that animal sanctuary. Seth thought Dan had a point, but was determined to try and salvage something from the tie-down that Carl Bloody Langley had imposed, and she could fuck him over in the process, more the better. Carl loved the bonfire night party. It was one of the opportunity-laden highlights of the year for a select group of his team. They watched each other's backs. If anyone other than his group knew what was happening, they turned a blind eye. It wouldn't do to blow the whistle, unless a nurse wanted to be on the ward with no one covering their backs. And so, when Carl, and in turn, some of the other male nurses, took a woman out of the disco for a while, it was easier to decide they were taking them out for a cigarette. The women were very accommodating if a few prescription drugs were offered in exchange for sex or hardcore porn photographs. Not a single patient ever complained, and so from Carl's perspective, no harm was done. Jess was looking forward to the firework. She'd always loved them, but wished Theo could be there. Theo was still reeling and feeling down about what had happened at the hospital and resentful that she'd been blamed. Her resentment has been getting in the way of her moving on from it and thinking about the future. In turn, that was having an impact on their relationship, which recently had been rocky. Jess was delighted when Theo announced that she'd been offered another job and thought perhaps her depression might lift and they could get themselves back on track. She was shocked to hear that it was at Lewis Prison, not far from Brighton, and the home she'd shared with Trin. The tables were suddenly turned. What would she do? Neither of them so far had found the courage to address the issue, and it lay like a hissing viper between them. You'll go with Angie, Jess. Have a great time and tell me all about it when you come back. The fireworks were magnificent and awesomely beautiful. The crowd stood restless with expectation. Few were as warmly dressed as they would ideally be. They had little need for thick coats, scarves and hats as impatience, with little access to the outside areas, and it was a chill, crisp November evening. 
Overdressed in every jumper and sweatshirt each owned, they stamped their feet and blew into their hands. Almost all smoked, and free of the restrictions in the hospital, they chain-smoked, taking lights off each other, the initial light having come from one of the nearby wards. The only lighter allowed was closely guarded by those ready to light the fire. The lighter was in fact a small sugar burner taken from the kitchens. It looked like a toy blowtorch. The film crew had their fixed cameras set up on a tripod just outside the barrier around the fire. Dan was ready to film the fireworks, after which he would pan to the fire, capturing those watching to his left. Seth held a small digital handheld camera and against original instructions, was scanning the crowd. The first rocket went up, signalling the beginning of the show. The tail of the rocket glowed orange in the sky and drew the obligatory hoops of those keen for the show to start. The rocket exploded in a glorious chrysanthemum. Green bouquet willows dripped until they faded. Within moments the sky lit with a million stars, tiny glowing balls of fire lighting the faces of the crowd already gasping in delight. Seth held her camera on Katie May, who was squealing and jumping up and down like a child. Seth knew her story. Comets flew through the air, splitting into more comets, scattering fragment trails in a myriad of colour, wet and white and green light blossomed while serpents wriggled and screamed through the crackling chrysanthemum adorned night air. Seth made her way towards Katie May unhindered. Everyone, including staff, were focused on the incredible display. Seth reckoned she had ten minutes at best. Against a backdrop of explosions loud enough to shake buildings, whistles and screeches, strobe and cacophonous, Katie May agreed to talk, but there was, of course, a cat. She wanted it to be worth her while. What's in it for me? Seth didn't smoke and hadn't been allowed to bring in her bag, so she had no cash. The only thing she had to give away was a small torch used to help light the way when setting up equipment for an outdoor shoot. Katie May was weirdly happy with that, which Seth patronisingly assumed to be something to do with learning disability, although Katie May had an exceptionally high IQ. As it cost less than two quid, Seth thought she'd bagged herself a bargain. Dan carried on filming the panorama. The films could be spliced later. I love it. I really love it. I really, really love it, shouted Katie May. This is my favourite bit. Look! Seth looked to where Katie May pointed and saw two nurses. One male, one female, go towards the fire and separate. One going to each side. Each held a torch aflame and moved to poke the timber mass as if with a poker. The large guy Fawkes sat crookedly atop of the fire. It looked like a witch burning of days gone by. Katie May was crying, sobbing, hands to her face. It looked like grief. Have you lost someone's fire? asked Seth naively, but with a firm hold of the camera trained on Katie May's tear-stained face. Oh, lots and lots of people, said Katie May but they won't let me do it anymore, it's so unfair. She began softly sobbing again, whilst watching the flames with her wide, wet eyes. Seth felt a rough hand on her arm, dragging the camera out of her hand and into the mud. A heavy boot landed on it. That's it, you were told, you're out, get your stuff now. Carl Langley grabbed her roughly. 
Katie Mae moved away and melted into the crowd. Dan was absolutely furious with Seth for incriminating him in what Langley had said was a serious crime under the Official Secrets Act and to be reported to the police. Neither Dan nor Seth knew that it was a bluff which would not be taken forward. More importantly though, he told her as they drove away from the hospital, they'd wasted weeks of filming. They had nothing. A bonfire. Woohoo! No one was going to pay to watch that and who the hell was interested in a film of a lunatic rapist demanding rights for murderers and rapists? Worse than that, they'd ruined the handheld camera. She was a complete bloody idiot, he told her. Seth kept quiet and never mentioned the loss of the torch. She let him rant as they drove. In her head she was already miles away from anything to do with Hilgram. Jess and Angie stood with some of the other staff and patients watching the spectacle. Angie was on form, hooting and hollering with joy at every zip of a rocket or crackle of a starburst, her magnificent hair wildly glinting in the glow of the fire. There was something about fireworks that just made everything wonderful and turned everyone into children having a good time. The mood was as light as the glittering fireworks and Jess reminded herself to congratulate Richard Paul for working so hard to raise enough money for the display. It went on for a whole 20 minutes. She reflected again what an amazing individual he could be if only he had not been so pathologically determined to rape women. He was not at the firework event and would not be at the disco. It was too dangerous, he said, to be relatively unsupervised around so many women, especially when several of those women had victim written over every pore of their bodies. Too much stimulus, he said. Better to stay away. He'd offered to help out with the learning disability patients to whom he was no threat. They were not his type. No chase. Too easy. The bonfire blazed. It wasn't a huge fire because the patients would get bored very quickly once the fireworks were over. It was five foot high. Tall enough for the guy to be seen as it caught light in a big whoosh and toppled into the flames. The staff had stuffed it with newspaper and dry kindling, and it was that that really caught. The planks of wood propped up like a teepee had only just started to catch, sending flickering smites of light into the air, and some patients asked to get in out of the cold. It was less than an hour after the last of the fireworks had been lit before snakes of patients were gladly walking towards the fitness building and up the stairs to the gym room. The designated fire crews waited to douse the fire as everyone left to go to the disco. Some of them wondered why they even bothered with the bonfire. enjoyed the show and would like to read more stories by Antonia Chain, you can find her on Facebook, Twitter, and at her website, AntoniaChain.com. Thanks for listening.